Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis. I'm joined by Steph Voye and Barry Casson. Hi, fellas. Hey, hey guys. Danny. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and our guest presenter is Chief Medical Resident at the Royal Columbian Hospital, Dr. Alina Liu. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's my hey, pleasure. Alina. <laughs> it is our pleasure. We're really looking forward to the case. All right. Awesome. Let's jump right in then. So my case for you today is a 66-year-old male. He's from Whitehorse and currently in Vancouver, visiting his son-in-law at St. Paul's Hospital, who's admitted with strep meningitis. He has a past medical history of trigeminal neuralgia diagnosed one month ago and Parkinson's disease diagnosed five years ago and comes in now with headache, transient confusion, and dyspnea. In regards to his medications, he's on Keflex 500QID, which started one week ago from his family doctor for prophylaxis against strep infection. He's also on Levodopa Carbidopa for the continuous release 200-50 five times a day for the uh, immediate release 100-25 four times a day. He was on carbamazepine, 600 milligrams twice a day, started around three weeks ago, and pregabalin, 150 milligrams BID, started about three weeks ago as well, with a dose increase in the last few days. He has no known drug allergies. He lives in Whitehorse with his daughter and son-in-law, and they have a pet dog. He works on community reclamation projects, so old mine sites, residential schools, lots of exposures there to lead paint, asbestos, mouse droppings, animals, etc. You have it. Most recent travel was to Norway one month ago, where he did see some reindeer. He has a 38-pack year history of smoking, does not drink, and does not use any recreational drugs. In regards to our actual story, so what brought him here today? On April 17th, his son was admitted to St. Paul's Hospital, ICU, for meningitis secondary to group C strep with endocarditis as well. He was started on Keflex for prophylaxis. On the 19th of April, he flew to Vancouver to meet his son-in-law, and at that time, he was totally well asymptomatic. On the 22nd of April, he started to have worsening headache, which he owed to his trigeminal neuralgia with pain, especially with chewing. He saw neurology, and they said, increase your pregabalin to 150 milligrams twice a day. The next day, he started to have some difficulty breathing, especially on exertion. The day following, the difficulty breathing worsened. He started to have some fatigue, as well as unintelligible speech, as mentioned by his daughter. He also noted some gait instability. The next day, he was difficult to rouse, confused with speech changes. He had a headache, neck stiffness, photophobia. The headache was 8 out of 10, frontotemporal, with a constant ache, and he had subjective fevers as well. He came to the eMERGE, and he was found to be sitting 92% on room air, somewhat uncomfortable, with a mild fever of 38.1. On review of systems, the only other things that are notable are a non-pruritic erythematous rash on the soles of the feet and palms, which started about four days ago and is now improving. When you go to see this patient, he looks pretty stable. Blood pressure is 119 over 56. Heart rate is 93. As mentioned before, a little bit of a fever, 38.1, which came down nicely with Tylenol to 37.4, and he's 92% on room air. Rest rate's about 20, a little bit of accessory muscle use, but he's alert, he's oriented, overall looks okay. There's no stigmata of endocarditis, head and neck exam is pretty unremarkable with pretty normal cranial nerves, no lymphadenopathy, maybe a little bit of nuchal rigidity, but negative Brudzinski's and negative Koenig's. 
Neurological exam is pretty unremarkable. His strength is intact, as well as his sensation. His coordination is excellent. He has no pronator drift. You do note that he has four plus reflexes with clonus on bilateral patella and a little bit of a tremor consistent with his history of Parkinson's disease. His Babinski's and Hoffman's are both normal. On respiratory exam, he does have bi-basilar crackles on inspiration, and his cardiac and GI exam are unremarkable. On dermatological exam, he has this blanching erythematous macular rash on the posterior of the ankles, dorsum of the left foot, and a little bit on the abdomen as well. In terms of his investigations now, his white blood cell count is a little bit elevated at 16.3 with an ANC of 12.3. Hemoglobin's 129 and platelets are 272. His INR and PTT are normal. Electrolytes, creatinine, urea, glucose, all normal. Extended lights are all normal as well. They do a flu swab before you see him, which is negative. His ECG shows a sinus rhythm with a QTC of 480 milliseconds. A chest x-ray is done, which shows minor fine reticular lines at the costophrenic angles bilaterally, which is consistent with potentially fibrosis or emphyseminous change. CT head shows nil acute, and a CT of the chest is done as well. It shows no PE, but extensive airway inflammation with patchy ground glass nodularity, fairly diffusely in subpleural distribution. It identifies bronchitis and bronchiolitis, likely infectious in etiology, with some interlobular septal thickening, most pronounced in the lung bases. You also note some mild bilateral hyalurolymphadenopathy. After the CT head shows nil acute, they do do an LP. The LP shows 50 LUCs, 63% neutrophils, 30% lymphocytes, 6% monocytes, and 1% eosinophils. There's 1840 RBCs, no organisms on the stain, the glucose is 4.4, and the protein is 0.35. A opening pressure is not recorded. So what do you guys think of the case so far? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty wild case so far. Like just opening thoughts is that this gentleman and his son are a, an unlucky pair. Uh, it sounds like the son was super sick and now the, the dad is like moving towards super sick as well, mm-hmm. you know, 66 years old with um, like unintelligible speech, like a week into his, or not even a week, couple days into his illness is, uh, is super concerning. So uh, that's a, uh, this is and nasty. I clarify, it is weight, like it is fluctuating. So when you see him, he's actually quite intelligible, but there are moments where he's quite confused. Hmm. So during those periods of unintelligible speech, it's not just dysarthria, there's actually like true confusion during those episodes, which are come and go. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, first thoughts, guys? Uh, it's the first case that I've ever heard where a reindeer could theoretically be involved. So kudos <laughs> for that. Just in time for Christmas. Exactly um, what I was going to say. The, the father and the son, are, do they have similar exposures? Like do they live together? They do live together, yes, but not similar exposures. So he works on reclamation projects, um, lots of exposures there, but he does not work with his son. So I I guess the issue, I think I see two issues. One is um, trying to solve the son's underlying etiology for how he got group C strep and what type of work he was doing. And the second issue is trying to identify if dad's illness is the illness secondary to exposure to his work or his son or his travel. 
and how would we fit that all together? And both of them seem to have an underlying infection, seemingly as the underlying process. And and how do we resolve that? It's uh, especially since he was the dad was given prophylaxis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that we need to flush out, or at least I need to flush. I mean, he has just by observation, he has meningitis or meningoencephalitis by his LP, and he has a number of other issues that have been identified by either history, physical, or the imaging. So he's got a fairly diffuse process. And I guess the question is, are we trying to identify the etiology or the connection between father and son or uh, or looking for a third etiology? I think that I would say that this is infection, and I don't think the issues of malignancy or connective tissue disease stand very strong from the outset, just looking at it this way. The uh, final thing I would say is about the rash. When the description you gave was on the palms and the soles, mm-hmm. but the description that you gave when you examined him seemed to be not on the palms and soles. Maybe you just admitted it, and and that certainly that type of rash carries with it a, a significant uh, association with certain infections. So, what are you thinking of there? Well, you know, he's been to Norway in the last month, and so it's possible that uh, he met a friend. <laughs> and what are you getting at there? Well, I think that's, that syphilis can represent itself in a variety of different modalities, including all this organ dysfunction, but certainly just, I mean, it's hard to, to invoke, but simply just a description of the rash would at least raise that spectrum on my mind. Yeah. I don't have a lot, like a, a long list for infections that cause it, um, like rash on the palms and soles specifically, like syphilis and Coxsackie virus. Right. Anything else on like, do you guys have anything else on the list, like for that illness script? No. I don't think so either. I mean, I'm sure that uh, there are a number of uh, uh, arthropod potentially uh, diseases, but it doesn't sound like he's, he'd have to have an arthropod with a coat on. <laughs> Yeah, some tick-borne illnesses as well. When they described the rash, they did say it was interesting in distribution. The one, the rash of the hands must have improved somewhat. And apparently the rash on the foot had improved a little bit as well. But they did say it looked like it was consistent with a viral exanthem, if anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I always think of like viral exanthem, though, being like just a little bit more elaborate than that. Like not just a little tiny patch here and there. Yeah, I, I, I think like at least like in my head when someone says like viral exanthem, I think like they broke out in a rash. I, I, I of course like don't get that many referrals for like viral exanthems. So I haven't seen that spectrum. But I, I, I think like I always lean towards investigating the rash because they can be evanescent and they're easy to biopsy. Like it's so safe. And, and so that's somewhere that we can get tissue. So, so I don't have to do the heavy diagnostic lifting. I can, I can pass that buck to pathology sometimes. And if I'm ever worried about like, okay, like there are other weird systemic diseases that can cause neurosymptoms, pulmonary symptoms, and rash like sarcoid, uh, lupus, and, and the like, having the biopsy, which could disappear on you, could be like helpful. So I usually try and pounce on those while while they're around. But uh, yeah, I mean, likely it's not going to solve this case for us. I think the I'm- only other question I'd have is uh, is the ethnicity of the is so is this First Nations Caucasian? He's Caucasian. There, okay, so that that's helpful. Just that you started out by telling us the headache was made worse by chewing. That's mm. 
very non-specific, but certainly I think most headaches are made worse by chewing. But anyway, that's that's helpful. I think I'm going to do the thing where I just the the presenter lays a trap and I just sort of walk right into the trap early. <laughs> you, you know, so so my initial thought was okay, like maybe this son's presentation is a total red herring, but maybe not if he has group C strep, like an invasive group C strep infection. I guess theoretically possible that the father does too, presenting with maybe lung involvement and maybe CNS involvement. So like, why isn't this all just, they, they've they got some weird common exposure and the father also now has group C, like invasive group C strep. What's interesting, right. one of the interesting features is that the father was started on prophylaxis, which I have to say, I've never heard of that before. And I love it. It's such a wacky thing. Um, is that something that is is a thing is like should I be doing that when someone has a has an invasive strep infection I should be putting their family on prophylaxis? But I, I think in this. certain diseases, of course, meningococcus is is the classic uh, infection that people are put on prophylaxis. Their close relatives. I I don't know what public health response to that. I I don't think it's wacky, but I I don't know that that's a public health uh, response. Yeah, I looked it up and I couldn't actually find anything for prophylaxis typically for individuals exposed to others with group C strep infection before. So I did think that was interesting as well. And I wonder how you think that contributes to his gram stain, which was negative on his LP and what your thoughts are on this aseptic appearing meningitis. I don't know. I'm actually not sure what to make of it. I don't think it, you know, at 50 white blood cells, it's not rip roaring but I don't think it rules out a bacterial meningitis. Like I'd still be following up this guy's cultures pretty closely. Like the glucose is pretty normal. I don't know. It's, we're, maybe we're catching a meningitis very early, but I don't think it's, I don't think bacterial meningitis has been ruled out at this point. But mostly, but you know, I mean, our caution is always if you've had antibiotics before, and he's not only had them, he's been given antibiotics. So the mod- his test results if they are related to group C strip, would be modified by what he's already taken. And I suppose the other concern is that since he's been given something, the antibiotic, are we seeing just an unusual reaction to a medication? Yeah, that's a good point. And, and nobody, no one yell at me for tossing this out there. There's uh, no bad ideas in brainstorming, but just trying to connect potential like strep infection with some of these other features we're seeing. Is there like... Is there an a, acute rheumatic fever equivalent in group C strep? Like, is, is there a potential that there is kind of like an inflammatory, post-infectious inflammatory phase to group C strep? I gotta say, like, I don't really have like a ton of content knowledge or content expertise around group C. Well, I mean, we're, you know, I guess the, maybe if we go back to the uh, origin, so where is group C strep endogenous? So it must must be the GI tract, uh, intra-abdominal. But it can be zoonotic too, right? It can, you can get it, it can. from like farm animals and stuff like that. Right. But I'm just saying that he could. So, so with potential sources. Uh, that's, I, I thing, that, that's, why, that's why I'm wondering about the common exposure because sure, it can be like just in your body. But if they both got it at the same time, and, and again, maybe the sun thing is a total red herring, but it's a bit weird, right? Like the yeah. two people in the same family have the same illness script happen at the same time 
to me, it suggests that they've had some common exposure. And, and again, I, I, I realize I'm almost certainly falling into a trap here, but, <laughs> but it does like, I, I would be like, if, if I was on service, let's say, I, like, let's say the dad was referred to me and I'm following him, I would be following the son in parallel because yeah. I feel like it would somehow be giving me a preview or some, some possibly helpful information about the dad. Not that I would necessarily act on all the information that's being gleaned from the son's care, but I, I would be following it really closely. What would you guys start him on overnight? Or I guess, what would you guys start him on in terms of antibiotics and antivirals? Well, just before we go there, do we have any more information about the son? I mean, we told he had strep meningitis. Do we know his parameters? Are the blood culture positive? Is he? Do we know what his white cell count is? Do we know if there was a competing diagnosis? Do we know anything more about the son? We don't know much more about the son other than it's endocarditis as well as meningitis. He's quite sick um, and he's in the ICU at St. Paul's Hospital and he was transferred from Whitehorse. So that's all the information we have on the son at this time. Yeah, I mean, this reminds me of a, a small cluster of cases I saw a few years ago. I mean, this this was called like Austrian syndrome, the, tri- the triad of endocarditis, uh, pneumonia and um, meningitis with with like an invasive strep infection. Um, I can't remember the ED. I think it was just strep pneumonia at that time, but but it does remind me of that. And it was a few people. It was pneumococcal. It was yeah. it was a pneumococcal, strep. It, right? It, it was a, there was a cluster of about eight or ten people. Yeah. So I don't know if that happens with group C strep, but anyway, that's kind of that's what I'm thinking about right now. It's a good thought. All right. So. In terms of management, is there anything you guys would be doing right now for this per- for this patient? I put on a diaper, and then I would start the person <laughs> on uh, meningitic doses of of antibiotics. I, I'd put like at our place, I would put on big doses of vancomycin. I don't know about ampicillin, probably not, and an antiviral and steroids. But ampicillin, he falls in the category uh, the H in the guidelines, and uh, and I think I'd add dexamethasone as well. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Great. So I'll tell you what happened in, for this patient. So he was started on Vanco, ceftriaxone, acyclovir, dex, and apicillin. And ID as well as neurology were consulted for assistance with this case. In regards to the actual pneumonia component, they said this looks like a viral or atypical bacterial infection. Doesn't look like a classic strepsy infection. So they continued the ceftriaxone at meningitic dosing. And they said we should probably start doxy as well, given this looks like an atypical infection. They said we should probably consult respirology for consideration of a bronchoscopy if we're not able to get a good sample through the sputum. They did order blood work as well for hantavirus, crypto, neurosyphilis, and Q fever. From the meningitis perspective, they said it looks more like a viral meningitis, not like a bacterial meningitis at this point. However, they agreed with you guys. They said we cannot rule out a strep meningitis at this point. I think we can discontinue the vanco, the acyclovir, the dex, and the amp, but they wanted to continue the ceftriaxone at meningitic dosing. The next day, despite being on antibiotics, the patient was still febrile, and oxygen requirements increased to 4 liters. He felt more dyspneic and had ongoing meningismus. When RESP saw the next day, they said, this is not consistent with a bacterial pneumonia with strep. I agree. They think it's viral versus atypical bacterial infection. They said we should consider a vasculitis, we should add Legionella and a viral PCR, do an ANA and an ANCA as well. They said we should probably consider Tamiflu until the viral PCR comes back and hold off on a bronch for now, given the acutely increasing oxygen requirements and instability. Over the weekend, we're watching this patient on CTU. The patient is still having fevers, peaking at 39.4. 
feeling more dyspneic. And by Sunday, he's on 50% FiO2 high flow nasal prongs. And his chest x-ray shows increasing reticular lung markings, especially in the upper lobes bilaterally. Family notes, he's still getting a little bit confused, maybe more frequently than before. He continues to have meningismus. Some results have come back at this point. Blood cultures are negative. His resp viral panel is negative. His sputum culture only shows normal respiratory um, flora. His CSF culture is negative. His gram stain as well is negative from the CSF. The PCR of HSV and VZV are negative from the CSF. The cryptococcal antigen is negative. Syphilis bloodwork is negative. ANA and ANCA are both negative. But interestingly, he starts to have some peripheral eosinophilia. It goes from normal up to 0.9 by the weekend, with the upper limit of normal being 0.7. And at this point, I would like to pause and say, what are your thoughts now with the developments over the last few days, despite being on antibiotics and the new peripheral eosinophilia? Uh, We're assuming that he's HIV negative. Is that correct? Oh, sorry. Yes. His HIV also comes back negative. And and his TB status from before, are we aware of? So we... We know that he has had exposures to Aboriginal communities, and he's never been diagnosed with TB before. We do have an AFB pending as well. Are you guys impressed by the eosinophilia? No. I think that it's it's a clue, but I mean, it's probably less of a clue than his his meningitis, uh, his white cells. But I guess it raises the spectrum of the possibility that we've introduced something, and since all our cultures are negative, and could this be a drug reaction, I suppose? Uh, but the, the non-specificity of the eosinophilia, I'm assuming his blood pressure is fine at this point. When his blood pressure is still fine, yes. Yeah. So it's just, to me, another something to think about and maybe to chase. But Do you think like... You, you Danny? Not, not, I mean, it's really it's really modest. So not, not like on its own, but in the context of someone who we think has meningitis NYD and not responding to like the initial fairly like broad elaborate treatments we're giving him I, I guess like at that point i'd be like okay well like which infections have we not cultured or looked for and with a little bit of eosinophilia rising in the background i'd at least wonder about some kind of like fungal parasitic e- etiology and i would have to like i would definitely have to like chat with id and be like okay like brain and lung and skin like what what like what's the venn diagram of overlap um, what's the list of bugs that do that and uh, and investigate those. So, so I, I would say... I, I don't know just, if it's a real clue or not, but I would take it as a clue, but but not as definitive. The wife the slash mother says, my husband went to visit my son and he was well and he took a medication which he hadn't taken before. And is that medication responsible for all of his problems independent of the son? So I think it just the eosinophilia... What, what are we doing, role play now? <laughs> I'm, I'm lost. I'm, I'm, too, I'm, I'm too behind. Uh, I'm suggesting that maybe the Keflex prophylaxis may be more of a factor than uh, we thought at the beginning. Like causing aseptic meningitis. Causing all not, of this. Like, I'd have to look into that. That's not something that I was like aware of as a, or even in dress. Like I wouldn't be, a, I, I wasn't aware of, of, of that associated. If there's an association there with an aseptic meningitis, I'd have to look all that up. There. So there's like yeah. a whole laundry list of drugs that cause aseptic meningitis, but oh gosh, this is getting complicated. Um, 
It's true. And I mean, that's like a very good thing to think about, right? Like, I mean, what causes an aseptic meningitis? Potentially infections, inflammatory malignancy, and drugs. Drugs being a diagnosis of exclusion. What causes peripheral eosinophilia, right? Like parasitic infections, fungal infections, drugs, and hypersensitivity reactions. So like an interesting thing to consider as a development for sure. Sort of one of the considerations if we're how many days into it at this point without any positive cultures with him getting worse is to stop everything except for his decks. I think I would probably, as a newbie, I'd probably be uncomfortable stopping stuff. Even the stuff they already stopped, I think I would have been uncomfortable stopping as quickly as they did. Not because I'm like, think I'm right, but more that I would just be like nervous um, because the guy sounds sick. I'm wondering if, like, was there much appetite for getting an, an MRI? In this guy, like we haven't really like we're attributing his behavior changes to meningitis, or or he's being labeled as meningitis. But but Barry said it earlier; he's more meningoencephalitis if he's actually becoming confused, and maybe there's actually brain lesions, not just diffuse, you know, brain dysfunction, and that too might help us like nail things down. Like oh, like neurocystocercosis or or some bug that specifically causes brain lesions that you might only be able to to see on an MR. Uh, yes, absolutely. So they do order an MRI. It is still pending at this point. And in regards to the medications he's still on right now, so he was on the ceftriaxone, the doxycycline, the DEX, which was actually, the DEX was actually held at this point. So he was on that before. And he continues to be on the carbamazepine for his trigeminal neuralgia, as well as the pregabalin. You know, the other thing, Barry, that sort of argues against this being a drug reaction is the inflammatory stuff in the lungs. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't be, right? I mean, it can happen, but I guess the other the, the other point uh, is just historically, if, you know, here's a guy that suddenly develops trigeminal neuralgia on the background of Parkinson's and then goes on to have neurologic complications and drugs to treat his trigeminal neuralgia. And so, I mean, we can get it even more complicated and get more lost than we are right now, but I can, uh, I, no, I can't. I can't get any more lost on him right now. <laughs> not allowed. Yeah, it sounds like the MRI is going to give us some information, but uh, I'm not even Barry, sure. Barry, Barry, you're giving me trigeminal neuralgia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'll take it. I'll take it back. <laughs> All right. So, uh, what do we do? But, from but, here? but I would. But I would have said that. Uh, I mean, I, I'm sorry. How many days are we into this now? At this point, you're five days in. So five yeah. days in, he's having worsening respiratory so symptoms he, despite he, all your antibiotics. Right, right. He doesn't have anything growing on culture. His headache is still there. His meningismus is still there. And now he has a new eosinophilia. Yeah. I, I, I have to say that at this point, I would stop everything except just dexamethasone. I would uh, consider the possibility of a bronch in a controlled situation since that's the other area of pathology. That seems to be the area that's causing his compromise at this point. Uh, recognizing, of course, he may have to, he may require critical care to, for support during that time. Those are the two things I think I'd do. I think the bronch is a good idea. I, I think Danny's MRI is a good idea. I don't think, you're welcome, Danny. Um, I don't think stopping everything is a defensible position right now. Like, he sounds pretty sick. And while, while I recognize that drug reactions can sometimes be very inflammatory. I, I, I don't buy at this point that this is a drug reaction. I, I think it would take more fortitude than I have to stop all his medications right now. While I recognize that's a tempting position, I, I, I couldn't myself do that. 
So I'm just reminded of a case that was presented in the New England Journal, I don't know, a number of years ago, let's say 10 years ago, where we went, where an HIV positive patient went through this whole process, much like this particular person with multi-system involvement and uh, suggestive of a febrile illness and, and the um, medication that was used for prophylaxis in this fellow had been introduced before and had been ignored, which was SEPTRA. And his the end of the case turned out to be a septra induced multi-system inflammatory disease. So I guess that's in part where, and Keflexin is certainly doesn't have the same um, background, but it's certainly something I would think about. And I, I think I do what I suggested for myself. Okay, Barry agrees with himself. So let's let's hear. It <laughs> All right. So we'll move on to say what what happened with the case. So the respirology team is looking at this case. They're going through all of the differentials potentially for this eosinophilia, and they note that carbamazepine has been associated before with peripheral eosinophilia, as well as pulmonary hypersensitivity. So they say, you know, I don't think this is going to be helping this patient right now. I think the reason this person has a headache is probably because of whatever kind of meningeal irritation is going on in the brain. Let's hold the carbamazepine. And this is about five days post-admission now. They also stop the pregabalin because they say this probably couldn't be helping right now either. They keep watching. The antibiotics are still continuing, still on doxy, still on ceftriaxone. And the next day, the dyspnea starts to improve. The oh, photophobia no. goes down. Oh, no. Oh, no. Continues oh, to have no. some headache. And the eosinophilia continues to persist. So from 0.9 to 1.1. The next day, he gets an MRI brain. It shows minimal meningeal enhancement and no other intracranial abnormalities. The AFB is negative. The mycobacterial culture also comes back negative. The next day, FiO2 has come down significantly, now only on five liters again. Oh, no. And they say, at this point, we could probably do a bronch. With the bronch, they do a cell count, and it shows for the differential, 19% eosinophils, 19% neutrophils, 26% lymphocytes, 33% monocytes, and 3% basophils. The gram stain and culture shows uh, scant growth of candida, and there's no biopsy done because of the ongoing oxygen requirements. They do do some BAL fluid analyses, which shows some atypical cells, which are query reactive versus malignant, can't differentiate. And they do do um, some cytology and cytometry with EBUS, which is negative for malignancy. At this point as well, a lot of the other blood work for eosinophilia has come back, all of which is negative so far. So strongyloides, negative. Stool ONP negative, fungal cultures will come back negative. The Legionella urinary antigen has come back negative. Hantavirus PCR is negative, and the Coxiella Brunetti is still pending. Oh my god! Oh boy, I would, Barry, I would, Barry, what would right. you like to do at this point? <laughs> or what Barry, would you do at this point? Barry's right, and we're seven and days in. <laughs> Barry's right, and it makes me sick. <laughs> he's, he's right all the time and it's always makes me sick so so i mean now it sounds to me more like a drug reaction is that is that wrong thinking like like the eosinophilia in the bronch yeah i don't know everything hey, I, seems to be turning I, around i just want to like i i i am also begrudgingly like sliding the hundred dollar bill we all bet um on every case over to barry but i i do want to just like it is also possible that at five days in, he's responding to the treatment for the infectious um, or inflammatory, like uh, like the infectious disorder that we just can't culture because he was on Keflex or because we haven't looked for it yet. So I, 
I don't know if I'm, I am not at 100% convinced that this is all carbamazepine induced. No, it's not 100%. Am I crazy? Okay. No, but his, his microbiologic workup is so negative at this point, you know, like, like 15 years ago, uh, 20 years ago, it, it was common. I think like culture media weren't as good. PCR methods weren't as good. We, people could have infections that we could miss them. Now the lab is so good. We just don't miss, I, I, I don't know what your sense is, Barry, but we, I don't think we miss infectious diseases quite as often as we used to. And so having like the guy must've had a million blood cultures and his CSF has been sampled and his bronch has been sampled and everything's negative. To me, it, it suggests that this is not infectious. Is that is that a wrong way to think, Barrier? No, I mean I, I I think I jumped in with uh, they both have infection, and then I just reflected on one of the things that, as I say, I take this pill and you'll be fine. And so oftentimes it's you know probably nine hundred ninety nine thousand times out of hundred thousand whatever you're fine. But in this situation where we are still struggling and he's worsening um, with us, as you point out, with the ability of the lab to make a, a provisional diagnosis and we we're not going any place i think the easier thing to say is maybe it is medication barry you are like the folksy small town lawyer with suspenders just uh, running circles around <laughs> yeah. the rest of us. that's that's a, that's what covid does to you <laughs> all right alina all what, right. So what, what did so- the what did the teams there think so they agreed. They said, you know, this really seems to be consistent with carbamazepine-induced aseptic meningitis as well as eosinophilia, particularly pulmonary eosinophilia. And so they decided to stop all the antibiotics. They finished a seven-day course at this point. They give prednisone 40 and do a taper of that. And over the next few days, the patient's oxygenation completely improves. They're on room air within a couple of days. Headache improves. They're ambulating, transferred down to the ward, and doing very well. Boo. <laughs> 14 days after admission, he's sent home. And then the team staff gets a call from the GP about 10 days later. And the Coxiella Bernetti IgM comes back positive. And they say, <laughs> what? Is this Q fever that we partially treated with doxycycline or is this carbamazepine induced aseptic meningitis and pulmonary eosinophilia? I feel like I'm watching the usual suspects because these twists and turns are uh, <laughs> are, are blowing my mind. So uh, so the coxiella IgM. So there was an, an acute exposure, acute infection with Coxiella. I mean, possibly. So Coxiella is typically well, a genetic infection. Yeah. So, so I mean, it's there, did he eat goat or did he eat sheep, wild sheep? or No, we don't have any documentation of sheep or goats. I'm very impressed that you knew off the top of your head that it's cattle, sheep, and goats that were exposed to you for Coxiella Brunetti. But yeah, no, he doesn't have any recollection of that. He did see that reindeer about a month ago. But saw it, right? He didn't like touch it. Animals, vets, et cetera, just through his job and occupation. But there was nothing he could really pin down in regards to an actual exposure. And his IgGs of note did come back negative. It was just the IgM that was positive. Okay, I, I think Steph might be regaining consciousness. Um, <laughs> I am, I am, what do you think? 
completely losing my business here. Like, <laughs> so the, I mean, ugh, okay. So it, it may also be that this will take as many of our cases here do take time to, to sort out, right? Like if this guy does not eventually develop uh coxiella IgGs, then you'd say that's just a false positive test, blow it off, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think I, I'd be comfortable doing that if if he's well. Obviously, this like like a, again, a lot of our cases, this guy will require close con- clinical surveillance. But if there's no obvious exposure, we may say this is just a red herring, and then uh, follow him up. And if the IgGs never come, never do anything about it. Is that again? Is that wrong? Is that crazy? I don't think that's we've crazy We've already at all. done something about it. I mean, we've yeah. treated, we've partially treated as coxiella, but, but I agree. I mean, you know, this is a shotgun approach to anything that wiggles we were testing for. I mean, who, who amongst us thought, I mean, even if you saw a reindeer for crumbs sake, it's, you know. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know they were real. <laughs> this, this is what reminds me, like, who on earth is listening to this show? This show is the most frustrating podcast <laughs> in the world. Yeah. You know, it's like, we, you know, we're not dumb, but every show, some weird thing shows up and we're like, we look like complete idiots. <laughs> yeah. It's true. We're, um, we're, the, we're clowns. For the listeners, were they jesters? Were uh, clones or clowns? Clownsberry. Oh, clowns. Okay, so, well, so 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 I, let's. I mean, it is. I think it is important to try to stick to some kind of plan here. So, what would you actually do? I mean, I the guy's at home now and he's feeling okay. I think I would just watch. Is I think that's what I would actually do. Yeah, I, agree I, with I think you. like he's he has resolved his acute illness and and like any infection, like the idea that every single strep infection needs exactly this many days like that's obviously not true like some people need a couple days some people need more and so maybe that was enough doxy but he's definitely well now and i i would not rechallenge with carbamazepine I'll tell you that <laughs> i wouldn't do that um just to prove the point that <laughs> to prove it wasn't the carbamazepine yeah i agree with you steph i would i would just watch him carefully. And I agree with like your comments on the IgG. I think that would be much more convincing there was a true infection. Yeah, I I, I don't disagree. I think that uh, we have a potential, we have a, a diagnosis of inclusion, which doesn't fit our clinical picture of diagnosis of exclusion, which was more everything fit until this, this the red herring came along. And Coxiella is, uh, is one of those organisms that's that's, but you you know you you really need to have some some sort of exposure, and we don't have any exposure. So did you I hear? Her, did you hear Danny how he talks about us? He doesn't say I agree with you. I heard that he says, too. I, he says I don't disagree with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I Barry, heard that too. <laughs> Barry is can't uh, can't even throw me a bone. Man, he is just he's turned into such a diva on this show. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I think I'm going to take. You love to watch us squirm. Yeah, I'm going to think I'm going to take my show and go home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're going to be the spinoff show of this show. (laughs) Yeah, well, it it is a tough case, and uh, so what happened, Elena, at the end? He was he did well, and so they did not decide to do an IgG. So we'll never know if he truly did have a Coxiella Bernetti infection or if that was a red herring. However, he continues to do well now. 
He has not been restarted on carbamazepine, of course. And we think probably, most likely, it was carbamazepine-induced. But we'll never have a for sure answer, I don't think. Well, that is also a classic uh, end to a, a St. Paul's Morning Report case, is <laughs> le- leaving listeners with a like, well, what do you think happened? That is a fa- <laughs> that is a fabulous case, Alina. Yeah, thank I, you so much for bringing that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was very good you and know, well presented. You know what it makes me? I mean, so so I I do think it's relevant to think through like what is the learning value here? Where what are the, what are the learning points? So you know, I don't think I'd ever really thought about or heard about aseptic meningitis. So so when I was growing up in medicine, I thought aseptic meningitis was like a euphemism for viral meningitis. Is, is is that was that your experience, Danny? Uh, yeah, that's yeah. what I thought it was until kind of I got a little deeper into medicine and, and people started saying aseptic meningitis about other things. I think where I heard about it next was more like IVIG. Yeah, and, and, and like, so oh, okay. So it turns infection. out there's a there turns out there's a bunch of other exposures or medications that will cause aseptic meningitis, and so you know and and I and then so eventually I sort of I had learned about that. And I'd heard about it, but never seen a case. And I was on a locum, this was maybe like seven or eight years ago. And I was in a small town in in rural BC and someone was admitted, like a 70-something-year-old gentleman who had a history of alcohol use, who was admitted with uh, confusion thought to be related to alcohol withdrawal. But uh, he actually wasn't a huge drinker and hadn't stopped drinking. So it wasn't clear why he would be in alcohol withdrawal. But what was interesting about him is that he just had dental work. And when I went back and looked in his electronic record, a year before he'd had the exact same presentation, admitted with presumed to be alcohol withdrawal with confusion. And the, the year before he'd had an LP and because he was very, very, very confused. He had an LP that showed sort of a few white cells, lymphocytic predominant. And so I LP'd him as well. And he had the exact same LP result, basically. He'd had sort of like 50 white cells. They were mostly lymphocytes. And so I was like, you know what? And 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 the previous episode a year before had also been shortly after uh, some dental work had been done. And so this was like a weekend. I went and I I, call, I opened up his, his uh, dental office on a Sunday and got his records from the previous year's procedure and then op- opened up a different office for his records that of, of the previous week. And he'd received, there was one medication, he'd, he'd received an antibiotic that was in common to both procedures. And so I think the actual diagnosis was aseptic meningitis related to an antibiotic exposure. So I, I don't wow. think this is, this isn't like a one in a million case. I think stopping to ask yourself, is it possible that that something we're doing, that a medication the patient is receiving is causing all of this? I think it's worth stopping to ask yourself that question. And so I I think that to me in this case is the learning point. I, I'm actually not really sure what, what happened in this case, but but I'm more satisfied with that explanation than I am with, with some of our other cases. I, I think here this it's plausible that this this was a drug reaction. Totally. Yeah. Well so Mol- so the concept of Moliere's disease, I think it's called Moliere's, where recurrent aseptic meningitis is oftentimes related to just as the stuff you've said, you know, some yeah, external Mollaret's meningitis. Mollaret's sort of Mollaret's. Uh, oh. In any case, thank you, Elena. That was really a challenge. <laughs> that, that was a good one. Thanks for having me. It was yeah. really fun. Yeah, yeah I think we'll, I need ha- to, we'll have to have you back. I need thank to think so. of that. Thank you very much. <laughs> 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 All right. Good night, everyone. Have a good Thanks. night. Thanks. Thanks.